There's an outline sheet in your worship folder. If you've got your Bibles open, as we said, take a look there just at that, that, that first part of uh, chapter 1 there. Because this opening greeting, this first portion of his letter, the, the Apostle Paul is really celebrating the miracle of the Colossian church. And its life, its ministry together. His thankfulness overflows into a prayer. And in verse 3, he writes that, what we've already read, he writes, we always thank God when we pray for you. We always thank God when we pray for you. Richard Foster says this about our prayers, our prayers for others. Here's what he writes. If we truly love people, we'll desire for them far more than it's within our power to give them. And this will lead us to prayer. If we truly love people, there will be more desire in us to give them what we cannot give apart from God, is what he's saying. He goes on. People today desperately need the help that we can give them. Marriages are being shattered. Children are being destroyed. Individuals are living lives of quiet desperation without purpose or future. And we can make a difference, he says. We can make a difference if we'll learn to pray on their behalf. Now, as we said, we're moving through this series. Tom Rainer's book, I'm a Church Member. Little book, good book. Fourth chapter, I will pray for my church leaders. He writes this, all church leaders need prayer. We church members must pray for our church leaders. So he urges members to pray for the pastor's preaching. And you need need to do that. <laughs> there, are, there are some weeks when you just haven't prayed hard enough, I think. That's the... <laughs> okay. No, it's really true. Pray for the pastor's preaching. There, in that chapter, he talks about praying for the family, protection from the devil's traps, physical and mental health. He writes this, as church members, we must be willing to pray for the leaders in our church. Without our ongoing intercessory prayer, our churches will not be healthy. That's the fact. But as I read this chapter, I was reminded of the numerous times that you all have said things like, you're praying for us, you're praying for my family, our family, you're praying for our move, you're praying, a, a bunch of you already this morning have asked about my dad, how he's doing, uh, praying for prayers for our congregation, family of faith during a time of transition. I know you're praying for our leaders, our church leaders, decisions over these coming months. You're praying for one another. And so I want to have us take a deeper look into Scripture and see what the Apostle Paul prayed for when he came to the Lord, lifting up folks in the churches that he loved. Colossians gives us great insight here. First of all, what we see as we read through these, these verses that we've looked at, but we're going to unpack in more depth, we see the, the content of his prayer. Now, Paul first tells those believers in Colossae that he's continually praising and thanking God for them. There's that amazing little third verse, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We always thank him. And then he tells us the content of his prayers in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We've not stopped praying. He's not exaggerating here. He simply means that praying for the congregation was a habit with him. 
was a habit. But here are the questions that we need to ask at this point. This is not just a history lesson of Paul and his love for the believers there in Colossae. This is not just a, a history lesson for a church all those thousands of years ago and some guy named Paul said he always prays for them. This is a message for us. This is a message for us. When I pray for others, for what do I pray? When I pray for others, for what do I pray? Are there requests that I bring before the Lord anywhere in line with what the Apostle Paul prays for here? D.A. Carson asks it this way. Suppose that 80 or 90% of my petitions ask God for good health, recovery from illness, safety on the road, good job, success in exams, the emotional needs of my children, success in our mortgage application, and much more of the same. How much of Paul's praying revolves around equivalent items? Do all our petitions revolve around our own family, our own cherished but rather small circle of friends? If we don't pray for our own circle, who will? But if that's the farthest reach of our prayers, this may be an index of how small and self-centered our world is. So the question is that Carson is asking, and what we realize here from what Paul is writing is, is there balance? Is there balance in my praying for others? Do I remember and pray for those who are close to me, my family, friends, and then the wider circle of my church family and its mission, its values, its call, the salvation of those whom I love, but is there also an even wider circle of prayer, say, for the persecuted church, the church around the world, our nation, our nation's leaders, upcoming elections and all of that, our world, its leaders? Now, what we see then here is three crucial items, three crucial terms in Paul's prayer. And these three terms were all used by a group that was called the Gnostics, it's G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S, -S, Gnostics, Gnostics. It was a group that was rampant in Paul's day and age, rampant through this area where Colossae was, and it was just absolute false teaching that was plaguing and just beleaguering the young believers in Colossae. This prevalent false teaching, Gnosticism, said basically that matter is essentially evil and spirit is essentially good. You say, well, so, matter is essentially evil, spirit is essentially good, so what's the point? Well, think through the implications, not just then. Think through the implications now. They argued that since God is spirit and good, he can't touch matter. You say, okay. What are the implications? Therefore, he did not create this world. He could have nothing to do with anything material, including human beings. Some lesser spirit than our God created this world. They believed in a, what were called a series of emanations that emanated out, and it was a lesser spirit that created this world. Most certainly God would have nothing to do with coming to this world then as a man living among us. So this Gnostic thought that Paul's combating here in this letter, there's no loving God that seeks us. 
There is no loving God who comes to us. There is no loving God who saves us. We're just left on our own to gain spiritual release through some sort of special knowledge. And that's the word gnosis, knowledge, this special knowledge. This special knowledge, the elite took a great deal of time, a great deal of money, and a great deal of ability to attain to this special level. The ordinary need not apply. Jake's remark right at the beginning of worship, we're an imperfect group of folks getting together here. Hey, what's that mean? Here we are, all of our foul-ups, goofs, sins, and blunders, just an ordinary group of folk. If that's the case, Gnosticism said, you may as well pack it up, turn out the light, and lock the door, the last one out, no need to come back. There you are. It shuts everything down. The ordinary need not apply. But in Paul's prayer, he's saying that there's no pretended superior possession for just a, a few. These are the gifts of God for all believers. And then he tells us what they are. He tells us what to pray for. First of all, verse 9, he talks about knowledge. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. The knowledge of his will. What's that mean? That term there means a deeper, broader, more complete knowledge. Deeper, broader, more complete. Now the Colossian Christians were under siege by those who kept saying that they needed a better and deeper knowledge. So Paul uses the term gnosis here, G-N-O-S-I-S. They were literally teaching that Jesus, good place to start, good teacher, but there's so much more that they could know. So much more that they could experience if they'd incorporate a system of passwords, passwords and special initiations and so-called superior teaching. The believers were being intimidated. They were beaten down by this haughty kind of attitude. And so, so Paul hits the problem, hits the problem head on. And he takes that characteristic word for knowledge and he simply says, no. No, no, no. All believers have the same access to this complete and deep knowledge of God. Is that just a word for then? No. What did I just say? All believers, all of us, all believers have access to this complete and deep knowledge of God. Now that's incredible to think about. He prays that it will increase in all of them and that they will use and employ what is already theirs. What is that? And say, well, what's that mean? It's an intellectual grasp of what the will of God is for my daily life. It's an intellectual grasp of what God's will is for the way I live my life day by day. Knowledge is not an end in itself. It doesn't center in theoretical speculation. We can be very knowledgeable about God and have memorized all kinds of Bible verses and be able to spout all kinds of stuff and still be far from doing, far from living the will of God in daily life, daily relationships? Does it make a difference in the way I live my life at home? Does it make a difference in the things I say at work? Does it make a difference in the way I behave? I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? Theodore Roosevelt said this about knowledge. Take a man who's stolen a boxcar... Give him an education with knowledge alone, and he'll be able to steal the whole railroad. 
So Paul doesn't just stop with knowledge. He goes on and he writes about wisdom, through all the wisdom. What's that mean? What's the term mean? The whole composite of mental faculty. The whole composite of mental faculties. Wisdom is a gift of the Holy Spirit. When God's Spirit takes up residence in us, we're given help in knowing more of God's nature, more of his will in life's daily relationships. There's a verse in James. A little verse in James affirms it. If any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. You say, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm supposed to. Hey, ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. This is a promise of scripture from the Lord to all of us. If any of you, all. I just don't know what I'm Ask God for help. Ask him. The request is to know the will of God so as to live in right relationship with him. Wisdom is the highest form of knowledge. It indicates apprehension of moral principle. Wisdom directs the, the application of what I know. The application of what I know. It blends the theoretical with the practical. Wisdom, then, is seeing life. You say, okay, what about my life? Well, let's name some. My trials. That hard thing that we're dealing with right now. That situation, the circumstance, the seeming problem. Seeing that, not merely from just the world's point of view, but from God's perspective. Fenton Hort says that wisdom is that endowment of heart and mind that's needed for the good conduct of life. The endowment of heart and mind that's needed for the good conduct or the right living of life. God's promise is that when we ask, he will give us what we need in wisdom. But it's not up to us to try to predict where we're going to find it <laughs> or what we're going to be going through when we realize it or how it will come or when. Paul writes then about knowledge, wisdom. What's the third term? Understanding. Understanding that it's the spirit that gives us. What's understanding? What's the term mean? The gift of insight to discriminate between what's true and what's false. Do we need that these days? Absolutely we do. This is insight to put things into proper perspective. Understanding helps us make valid judgments to keep things in their right place. It's Arch, Archbishop William Temple's, uh, Tony Campolo's story. They tell the same story about the switched price tags. You remember that old story, the switched price tags? Some scoundrel comes in in the middle of the night. He sneaks into a shop, and he replaces cheap price tags on the expensive items, and he puts expensive tags on the cheap items. And then the next morning, the customers come into the shop, and they wind up paying high price for junk. It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Am I paying high prices for junk? Understanding helps us to realize the stupidity of majoring on minor matters. Of spending huge amounts of time and energy and money on things, the passing things of this world, rather than on the truly valuable items. What are those? Principle, values, character, depth, virtue, soundness, life. 
learning this, training up our children, our grandchildren in this, in things that will last for eternity. What's Paul praying for here? A mind trained and growing within the framework, the construction of a Christian worldview. You say, well, what's that? The construction, the framework, a Christian worldview. A, a Christian worldview simply means asking, first of all, what's real? A worldview asks a question, what's real? It, it leads to beliefs. The question is, what is true? That leads to values. What is good? And behavior or actions, what am I to do? What's done? What's real? What's true? What's good? What's done? Those are the kinds of questions that lead to a different kind of life. Now, what's Paul praying for here? A mind trained and growing within the framework, the construction of a different kind of life this side of heaven. But what if we consciously begin praying then for the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding? Who can benefit from that kind of intercessory prayer? How can, how can you and I be part of the answer to that kind of prayer? Can I be part of the answer if I'm not spending time in reading and thinking about God's word? Can I be part of the answer if worship is just a matter of eh, whim, chance, personal convenience, eh, take it or leave it? Eh. Can it be can I be part of the answer if I'm refusing to do what I already know to be right or faithful or moral or honest? or virtuous, or healthy. If I'm moving in the wrong direction, I know I need to turn around. But Paul, Paul is writing about some, something even deeper here. And that, that's really why I picked this, this passage from Colossians this morning. Because what Tom Rainer writes, what, what Tom writes in, in this little book, it's a great little book, and what he writes about in the fourth chapter, about praying for church leaders, it's all true. But there's, there's more. It's deeper. There's more. Am I laying out my plan and then asking God to bless it, plotting my, strat plotting my own strategy, and then just expecting him to do it? trying to get God to go my way and just kind of living as though he's my right-hand man. Paul says that it's meant to be just the opposite. I seek his will, find what he's doing, and then I get on board with that. See, this is so much more than being presumptuous about my relationship with God. God, here's my plan. Bless it. Thank you very much. Amen. Man, talk about presumptive. What Paul is emphasizing here in these verses is that every believer in Jesus Christ ought to be able to filter the world's seductive so-called knowledge and wisdom through the grid of the Lord's knowledge and wisdom 
and understanding. It's not some chance insight. It's the result of consistent communion. Faithful reliance. Daily relationship. We were never meant to try to hobble through our days this side of heaven just doing, oh, I'm okay under the circumstances. This is not what Paul's writing about here, crew. Paul's not praying that the Colossians or us will just have better ideas about God, but lives that are reflections of his love and actually reproducing his character in our daily living. And he gives us several descriptive phrases to illustrate that. He writes about the conduct of there and our, our lives. It's in verses 10 to 14. And he starts out in verse 10 by talking about a life lived worthily. Live, may live a life worthy of the Lord. Worthy of the Lord. And some translations say that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now, in Hebrew thought, the word walk symbolically referred to conduct. So, again, this teaching is in direct contradiction to that Gnostic teaching that said since the body is evil and the spirit is good, it doesn't matter one way or the other what difference is it. It doesn't matter what we do with our body. And so the hedonists, and we know that's where the word hedonistic comes from, the hedonists did anything and everything with their body. Now, we, do we still have a culture like that? Do we have a world like that these days? You bet we do. So is Paul writing some, some history lesson here? No, he's not. This applies to us. This applies to us. Paul says, don't forget the connection between knowledge and conduct. True spiritual knowledge means right living. Paul's writing about a balanced life. And that's precisely the word that he uses here when he says, live a life worthy. That little word worthy is axios, A-X-I-O-S, axios. And it means weighing as much as another. The, the word picture is of a scale, an ancient scale. And what Christ has done and is doing for us as believers is on one side, and then our Christian behavior and conduct is on the other so what he says here is to live a life worthy of the Lord means having weight that balances the weight of the Lord's love at the other side of the scale. A balanced life. Now this must be so important to him because what we see over and over is not just this term used in Colossians, but it's used other places as well. He writes this over and over to the believers, those young believers, all over the place. Look at these. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That's in Ephesians, but it's also in Philippians. As citizens of heaven, live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What's this mean, this balanced way? We are to walk our talk. Walk our talk. Live out daily what we say we believe so that there's congruence, so that there's integrity between what we say and how we live. Conduct that's expected and appropriate. It's expected of us from God. It's expected and it's appropriate. Now, 
Of course, we can never actually balance the scale between our love and Christ's love. That's not what Paul's saying here, that we'll be able to do that. But knowing and experiencing his gracious love and mercy, we simply live to please him. We live to please him. It's not a life of seeking to earn his love, but instead it's a call to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. Please him in every way. The picture here is simply asking, what audience am I playing to? If all of life is a stage, okay, what audience am I playing? Who's in your balcony? You know, the, 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 the expensive seats, okay? You've seen all that. The theaters and off to the side, up, up high, little. Who's in the expensive seat, the balcony of your life? What audience are you playing to? The picture is simply that. We really only have an audience of one. One. That we're called to please. How do we do it? Live a life, Paul says, live a life that bears fruit for the Lord. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Now, this part can read bearing fruit and increasing in every good work by the knowledge of God. What Paul's expressing here is his desire for a life of growing fruitfulness and goodness because of the knowledge of God that he's already prayed for. So he's emphasizing then this vital link between right belief and righteous conduct. Right belief and righteous conduct between knowledge and service, between knowing and doing. And it's one of the fundamental laws of spiritual growth. We call it root and fruit. They're inseparable. The way it's worded here means a constant, ongoing reality. That's what he prays for. Just this constant, ongoing reality, this way of life. How does that show up? Paul tells us. Fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I need to ask me, you ask yourself, do I live my life day by day? Are these growing in me? Fruit is meant to grow. Are these character qualities growing in me? Our prayers are meant to be in harmony with our lifestyle. The fruit of our lives. And it all flows from this balanced walk with the Lord. So it just brings us back. It just circles back to these basic, basic questions then. Am I aligned with the motives and the life of Jesus? Am I aligned with the motives in the life of Jesus? Pretty simple question. But it's a question that goes right to the depth of our heart. Now, I can know, I can know, I can have knowledge about what Jesus asks of me for my life, my work, my relationships. You add to the list but am I refusing to act on what I already know? And if that's the case, then it's no wonder I'm miserable because I'm not living out what I already know to be true. And then when that begins to happen, the realization is that if I'm, if I'm fighting a civil war, I tend to make casualties of the people around me. 
Is that going on in your life? Am I aligned with the motives and the life of Jesus? What would Jesus have me do in this situation, this relationship, this work, this job? Are my speech and my conduct worthy of him? What would please him most? When I'm praying for others, am I lifting up their need for a true knowledge of his will for their life? That they'll be maturing in their desire to please the Lord. Are we praying? Are we praying that we ourselves are a sacred, set-apart people? That we are a people realizing that we are the people of God. We are the people of God, a sacred, called-apart people in a profane world. Are we different Is there a conscious presentation of all that we are and all that we have to him? Are there moment-by-moment decisions of renewal and faithfulness, of walking obediently in a wayward world? Am I living my life differently? Are we praying that as a church we'll be yielding ourselves to his good work of grace? Are we praying as a church to be faithful through the transitions? I don't have... I don't have that many more messages to share with you all. I'm serious. This is my heart that I'm sharing with you. This is meant to go deep in us. Are we praying that as a church we'll be yielding ourselves to the Lord's good work of grace? Are you praying for your leadership? For a knowledge of God's will and that they'll act on that with understanding. Church leaders, are you praying for your leadership, your own leadership and the folks that surround you? You're praying for your attitude. Are you praying for what you say and what you don't? This is an important time through the life of our congregation. Are you praying that you're yielding yourself to God's good work of grace in you? Faithfulness through the transition. See, these are the deep things. These are the deep things of God's spirit that Paul prays for because of his love for the church. It's this that makes the difference. It's this that makes the difference, your life and mine. It's this that's our prayer for the people around us, our church family, the world that Jesus died to save. It's this. Let's pray. Prayers, Lord, are not only for ourselves, but for others. The prayers are that will be authentic, that actions will witness the faith, and that as a church there will be credit to the name that we bear. We pray for the spiritual development of the people that we know and for our church leaders. We lift them up day by day through a time of transition. We pray for a greater understanding of your love in the lives of folks who are in need of your salvation. We pray that we'll have a good word to share with them when the time is right. 
and the occasion presents itself that we'll have a reason for the hope that's in us. We pray for lives that please you. We pray that we will be putting into practice the truth we say we believe. Help us to live this way. All of us, all of us praying for one another through this life, through this time, through these days. We pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.